first book called Patience and Monuments. Uh, this was written over the course of, I don't know, seven or eight years. And uh, part of school did a lot of that there. So this is uh, Patience and Monuments. It's still available from Neo Poesis Press. It's called Cars Go By. The other day I saw an old man with a long gray beard and soulful eyes sitting atop a milk crate up against the wall just outside a liquor store. He appeared very beatific, just sitting there watching cars go by. I went by too. A couple of hours later, done with an odd list of errands and appointments, I drove back by. He sat there still. I pulled into a parking lot behind a liquor store and sat next to him with my own milk crate I found next to a beat down dumpster. We sat there, he and I, without saying a word, as if this happened to him every day. Gray clouds slowly gathered and night pushed away at the sun. The old man with the gray beard and the soulful eyes stood and looked at me through me as if in a dream. He smiled and said, thank you, then disappeared. I drove that way a time or two, but never saw him again. Although on occasion, I will grab a milk crate and sit and watch cars go by. One's called Empty Houses. Empty Houses, fires burn down empty houses as they walk down streets vacant of life. Only ghosts linger in the cool shade of oleander and palm trees. I remember so well the words of my father, but I can no longer walk in his footsteps. The path he knows goes much farther than my heart will know to follow. Thick black smoke burns my eyes. I find comfort on the back step of an old memory. An odd compendium of time and remorse stacked like Bibles in a downtrodden church. The devil dances with matches, striking them one by one. I watch the tips spark to life before he flicks them into an unsuspecting soul. At the end of another asphalt river, I step from the curb, neighborhoods awash with blazing light. His eye meets mine. I know the shame of living, the sorrow of survival. I taste the ash upon my wicked tongue, mute from words stolen across dark ages. Lost in memories of misdirection, my feet shuffle along the, with, along the sound scraping against my skin. The warmth of burning, burning flesh, the warmth of burning fresh upon my soul. Here's the juxtaposition. Fish Harbor. I remember the clang of Halyard's cry well before dawn. Long, thin boughs cut silver glass, silver grass, sending tides of rise and fall. A longing moan of inner harbor, buoy greets them as they go by, off to chase the crimson sun, gulls in their wake as they slowly gather speed. Lights dim, fade, exhaust as angry pistons kick with soul, soulful force. I can hear the men move about on black wood decks, laugh and drink coffee, go about their day. We settle back into slumber. She and I, three hours before a midweek rise, no other sound, sight, or thought crosses my mind other than the gentle creak of a world spinning round. Um, this one's called Novice. And big thanks to Wolfgang Carstens for trusting me. Um, um, I didn't do it justice. I didn't do it the right way. Um, he, still, he still respects me despite, despite my lack of enthusiasm, I suppose. It's called novice. I'm new at this. I don't know the rules, the codes, or secret handshakes. If they held orientation, no one sent me an email invitation. I know the right street, where to stand, act like everything's cool, as if nothing significant is happening. I try not to be afraid. I try not to flinch with each sudden sound. 
Money changes hands. It's pretty simple. Don't talk too much. Never ask questions. It's just a transaction. Two bindles sit atop my old wood desk next to the retirement clock. A you're the best dad coffee cup. A cell phone that no longer rings. I transfer cottons from contents from a button bag to a ceramic bowl, smash rock to powder, cut two lines, roll a $20 bill. When I was six or seven, kids would laugh and scream as we ran around the playground chasing futures without concern. Headlines in the paper, recession deepens, cities burn, wars rage, children die. Email remains empty, no offers of employment. I cut another line, I'm in denial. Dreams, ass fuck and bleeding, two years gone and 20K more in debt, cash in my student loan check as a quick page, at a quick pay joint in a low rent strip mall. Very crisp bills in my pocket and walk up to a place I know all too well. I learn the cliches of using slang and catchphrases, how to act in the pinch, how to run without looking. My mother called today, asked for an update. Everything is fine, I said. It's always fine. I circle jobs in the paper, go online for applications, cut a line for survival, try to write without lying. A friend of mine called, no specific reason. We talk about the future. I lie with each word. He's married, happy, employed, insured. For a moment, I hate him, but it passes. This one is a little thematically similar because all the poems in this book are pretty much the same vein, so to speak. Uh, this, this is called Finding. I found freedom at the center of a rolled up $20 bill. Although it's, sometimes it's a five or a 50, depending on payday and when rent is, rent is due. Right now, we're just dancing two strangers at a bar mitzvah or a Polish wedding, one more lonely than the other, yet the other seems willing to give. Every day I eat oranges, sometimes 10 a day. I buy them by the bag from a dark-skinned Mexican Bernjaro. Once a week, sometimes more, I send up smoke singles and stop by her office to make the exchange. At the wooden table in my kitchen, I work the grinder and I put on good shoes, sit in suspension, wait for music to begin. When I'm high, I'm a hero. No one can touch me. No one leaves pepper when I ask for salt. No one can case me when I'm, when I'm in flight flying solo. No one can see me because I'm not there. When I'm high, I put away worry. I put away Sunday. I live the divine. Smile serene through thoughts in proper order. I sit at the computer, listen to the clock tick, watch wind bend branches, planes fly over, land at airports, motorcycles rattle windows, cars bump down asphalt rivers. The new book, uh, Driving with Crazy. Uh, it's called First Days. Mother stands on the front porch of my childhood home and waves brightly as I walk off to my first day of first grade. I am terrified. My father sits in a wheelchair in his room, staring at the wall. My footsteps echo as I walk toward him. School is big and scary. Lots of kids I don't know. Some glare at me. Mostly I'm ignored. The teacher seems nice, but everything is new and different. A nurse gives me an update about my father's medication, his care, how things work on a day-to-day -day basis. I sit with them as we wait for breakfast. At recess, I make a friend. We remained friends until I moved to Orange County in the middle of fourth grade. My father introduces me to Bill, his roommate. They are fast friends after two days. My father says he will take care of Bill and the others. My mother asked me about the first grade, and I say it's a little frightening, but I will be okay. 
I mentioned I'd rather be home with her. And 51 years later, my father says the same thing. Um, and they're all thanks to Ra, um, ex except for one. But mostly, like, the next seven poems are all due to Ra. Uh, and one I like to read uh, just because it's a different kind of cadence for me. Uh, it's called Kid in an Iron Lung. And this is actually an entirely true story. Okay. Kid in the Iron Lung. He had a rare disease, that kid across the street, the kid that didn't go to school, the kid that lived in an iron lung. My mom made me go see him, that kid, the weird kid, the one with the giant black machine in his dining room. His mom bought him everything, anything he wanted. We were all jealous, that kid. Comic books and toys, anything he wanted. He let me read the comic books, and sometimes I would steal them, stuff them in my, the back of my pants. My mom always caught me. We didn't have extra money for comic books, and I would have to march back across the street, apologize to that kid, the one in the iron lung in his living room. He didn't seem to mind much. He started to give them to me so I wouldn't be considered a thief. As I got older, I stopped going over to see the kid across the street. And when I played stickball or street hockey with Richard and Johnny, I really didn't care if he looked out the window, sad because he had to live in an iron lung, because he couldn't play stickball or street hockey or anything outside. Several months after I moved away, he died, that kid across the street, the one with the iron lung in the dining room. I wondered then, if he had looked out his window watching Richard, Johnny, and me playing stickball and street hockey, I wonder if he hated me as much as I hated myself when I found out he died. Um, Mrs. Similian taught eighth grade math. Every time Mrs. Similian slapped the dusty chalkboard with her pointer stick, I smiled. Mrs. Similian taught eighth grade math. Some days she wore leather pants. Some days she slapped the board with her pointer stick while wearing leather pants, and I would smile. One day, Mrs. Similian called me to, the, to answer a problem at the board. She wore leather pants, slapped the board. I could not stand up. Is there a problem, Mr. Jack? Slap. He cannot come up to the board. Slap, slap. Why can you not come up to the board, Mr. Jack? Slap, slap, slap. Finally, I stood. Girls cringed. Boys laughed. One shouted, Jack's got a boner. And I did, proudly. Mrs. Similian took one look, smirked. You may go. Instead of the principal's office, I went to the boys' restroom. Slap, slap, slap. When I explained to the principal, he let it go. He's just a boy. When I explained to my father, he let it go as well. When I explained to my mother, she grounded me for two weeks and made me apologize to Mrs. Similian, who politely declined when I tried to bring it up. <laughs> Called it the day my father fought the Portuguese Navy. On a bright, clear day in the mid-70s, my father fought the Portuguese Navy. Out in the trimaran, the loophole, racing across an anchorage of large cargo vessels waiting to dock and unload containers of plastic toys and transistor radio sets, out past the breakers, high wind, high speed, skipping like a stone across wave tops, and then nothing. Wind dies, water becomes glass. The loophole heads straight towards a Portuguese freighter filled with cork and wine and Russian nesting dolls. The loophole is a short keel, tall mass, a tall mass without wind. There is nothing but the current momentum and the breeze from seagulls mongering for fish to push her on. Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. We slam into the side of the freighter, bam, and again, bam, and again. Crewmen stare over the side, scream, Quea su pora problema. I'm shocked. My sister is shocked, my mother is shocked, and my father clenches his fist, screaming back at the Portuguese crew, 
port profanities in multiple languages fly back and forth. We bounce down the side of the freighter, bam, 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 finally released to a wisp of wind that takes us back to our mooring in Fish Harbor, damaged but ultimately victorious in our battle against the Portuguese Navy. <laughs> this is called Addiction. And this was written in a time of um, crumped. Addiction lays you bare, deep in your skull. Dreams and life and love disrupted, torn away, shattered, empty glasses smashed against stone. It starts young, a gentle breeze, smooth and slow without conditions, until you finally, suddenly snap back to life screaming. You try to hide it, the madness, insanity, bipolar apparitions. It will bury you in shame, dark shadows. No breathing but the art of deception will always keep you whole. Death dealers circle on shiny jet thermals, wait for the signature, full compliance, desecration of the soul. Bury the humi humiliation in vaults made of concrete, outside the prison, the cage, behind lock and key, taste it, still wet in your fingers, wet copper or gunmetal sticks to your tongue. It's right here in plain sight, but no one left, no one turns left at the signal, signal. No one can see light fall from the stars. There are doctors and 12 steps and hope for a future. But once it has caught you, the coils never forgive. There is pain in survival when you dream of surrender. But if you can't face a mirror, how can you face the truth? Out to kill rabbits. The first day we dressed out in high school gym, a senior boy punched me in the face, called me queer as a choir of boys howled in derision. A rabbit sits atop a grassy knoll, eats grass, and watches for danger. At 16, I had yet to accept my awkwardness, long legs and gangly arms, acne, sadness, and general ineptitude. A rabbit hides during daylight in thick bushes or down holes in the earth, fearful of predators and potential death. Throughout 10th grade, everyone picked on me, put me in the corner, bullied me into complete sorrow. But I learned to fight, learned to shout them down, learned to run, learned to keep my secrets locked down tight. Coyotes and wolves and kids with rocks stalked the rabbit. But if the rabbit is smart, they stay safe. They must always be smarter than those that wish to do them harm. Senior year, I reached full height, full strength, mind quick and nimble, and more clever than bullies. I outgrew the noise of high school, but not before breaking bones and crushing souls. A rabbit corner can be a fearsome thing, and they will fight for survival when running away, when running away is no longer an option. Just after winter break, senior year, I found myself in front of the damning gaze of the vice principal, his face red, voice rough from yelling. I had become the bully. A rabbit's life is short due to so many predators. Life, is, life in the wild is always a struggle. Upon graduation, I left high school, never looked back. I still break bones of predators out to kill rabbits. And the first one's called My Father's Eyes. My father has beautiful blue eyes, eyes we share. When I look to his eyes, I see myself, my mortality. I see fire and fight, a longing to understand why we've locked him away in the loony bin. Some days there are, they are remarkable and clear, a mischievous glimmer, still a boy raising hell, pulling pranks, all with a golden heart. And some days his eyes are gray. He cannot speak well enough to make you understand and frustration builds. And through it all, he still helps those around him. Russell, the retired Marine who wanders the hall. Bill, who's so medicated he can barely stay awake. And Randy with Tourette's calms down when my father looks him in the eye. So much frustration and fading. 
When the mind snaps and the body slows, we hang on and fight for each moment, each breath. Every day, a new hope and a new disappointment. We all dance in front of a mirror only to stop when they take the mirror away and when blue eyes slowly close. And this is called slowly dying. I used to laugh at the I've fallen and I can't get up commercials. Not anymore. My father called me, expressed joy that my daughter had made Dean's List at university. It was coherent. I understood every word. The fog had lifted, but for a moment. I heard shuffling, things falling in the background. He muttered, I'm okay, but I knew. My, father, my mother answered her phone on the third ring. You know where dad is, right? No. She found him in the back room on the floor, crumpled old linen waiting for the wash. I have to call EMT to get him up. I called my sister and said, everything's fine. Last night while my mother ran to get dinner, he found a door he could open and disappeared into the night. The Sun City Police Department found him wandering at the alley. No cane, no walker, no wheelchair. He said, I just want a carton of cigarettes. He's dying. Cancer returned. Outlook grim. Prepare yourself. I say give him the smokes and a liter of bourbon. Go out kicking and screaming, not lost in the fog, fading faster in the dimming sun in a winter sky. It's called Busted. It's from my childhood, Busted. Before I had a driver's license, my, father, my parents would drive me around, depending on mood, time of day, weather, and a variety of factors that my father would list. I convinced my father to drive me and my friends to the L.A. Coliseum for a concert. He dropped us at the corner, gave us explicit instructions when and where to meet for the ride home. At 15, I passed for 21. In those days, no one really cared. I bought a fifth of Jack Daniels and back, a pack of cigarettes at the liquor store before entering the concert. We met up with a couple of girls from Van Nuys, smoked cigarettes, ate hot dogs, got sunburned, and had the best time. At 11 o'clock, me and my friends stood in the corner just outside the Coliseum waiting on my father. We piled into the back of his company car. And when my mother asked my dad for a cigarette, he said, ask your son. I pulled out my my pack of smokes, clearly visible in my shirt pocket, and handed them to my mother. She coolly took one and handed them back. We'll talk about this later, my father said. I think I used the word hypocrite when we talked, but I don't remember anything after, other than I knew I'd always get caught, no matter how well I lied. Um, this is called gaining on us. They say once a snowball gains a certain amount of downhill mo momentum, you cannot stop it. Hi hypothetically, the snowball will consume anything in its path, trees, homes, people, lives. The snowball will only stop when it collides with forces bigger, stronger, more durable than the force of a, that a snowball brings. My father continues to build momentum. My sister and mother called, said, it's too much. They said, you need to do something, as if I have any skill set to manage crazy. I talked to my father this week, and he seems coherent. And yeah, he spoke about flying gliders as a boy in upstate New York as if it was yesterday. When a snowball hits and rumbles to a stop, there's devastation, there's death, there's pain. Once as a child, I flew a glider with my mother. I sat on her lap. My job was to pull the knob that released the glider from the tow plane. I did it well. We soared above Wisconsin and dairy farms and green hills. We soared <coughs> above the noise of a crazy world, free within the clouds and heavy on the winds. Uh-oh, I'm going to choke. <clears> How <throat> I wish I was in the glider now, high above it all. But I am here on the mountain, standing before a snowball, trying to stop something that is inevitable. 
This one's called uh, The Very Definition of Sorrow. And then I'm going to go, the following poem is very short, but it kind of is a, a coda to this one. Um, the Very Definition of Sorrow. My father sits in a room waiting, waiting for a son to call or a daughter or a wife. Every time I call the loony bin, one of the inmates picks up the phone and listens to me, to my pleas to talk to my father, to just say hello, to just check in before the voice says no. When COVID hit his when COVID hit his convalescent hospital where he sits waiting to die, a place where the outside is not supposed to get inside, the lunatics have taken over the asylum and young nurses with small children no longer come to work. I sit on hold waiting again to talk to my father, talk to somebody sane, somebody that might know something about anything, but no one knows anything. When it gets bad, no one seems to care. I sit and wait as anger creeps into every fucking cell of my body. The thought of my father dying alone in that room without family at his side is the very definition of sorrow. Tomorrow I will get in my car, drive 330 miles east and kick down the door of my father's convalescent hospital. But I won't. He told me not to come. He told me to stay safe and to break them out when all of this is over. This is called zombie. My mind drifts and I wonder if COVID has taken over like a zombie movie, everyone infected. Maybe my father is a zombie. He'd like that. He could express his rage and fuck people up. This is called Elegy for My Father. This is not the time for sorrow or sadness. This is not the time for regret. Life moves forward with debilitating slowness and maddening sobriety. As we hold tight the rails when seas begin to rise, there is magic in life and in death. And now my father captains his ship toward heavens forever, held tight in eternity's bliss, his smile bright and strong, his laugh loud and unending. There's no pain, no sorrow, no cancer, no madness. Only the unending joy as he watches us travel the earth, trying to endure, awaiting a time when we all meet again. That was read at my father's funeral. Time never stops for the dead. We sit around a kitchen table at my sister's house, Peoria, Arizona, waiting it out. My father's memorial day is away, nothing left to do but sit and scrape through old memories. Boxes of old pictures litter the kitchen table. Is that you? And oh, look at this one. And everyone looks so different. We review plans, change plans, buy urns, create agendas, but there's nothing important left to do. Outside a bright Arizona sun continues to melt asphalt. Blackbirds hide in low bushes. Police sirens echo from a main street. Gray clouds tease from a distant horizon. Maybe we should order pizza. Where's the whiskey? What time is it? What are we doing? My niece mixes strong drinks and we toast my father, grandpa, the old man. We remember without speaking, but the present keeps knocking. Just as there are no rest for the wicked, Time never sleeps for the dead.